Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of my podcast, The Ventures of Flash. This is episode 17. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about various subjects and uh, one of the beginning uh, things that I want to talk about is uh, Doc Holliday. That's going to be our main feature tonight. Uh, that's one of my favorite OS stories about Doc Holliday. You know, I love those old stories, Billy the Kid, Doc Holliday, all those guys. And, you know, it makes you wonder if all the stories that's been told, if they hadn't gained uh, a lot of stuff over the years and are they completely accurate and true or whatever. And, you know, most of those stories and them legends get bigger and bigger as time goes by. I've learned that from uh, some things about myself. Uh, those stories get bigger and bigger and stuff gets added into them. So tonight we're going to listen to some uh, history buffs, uh, some people that have researched and uh, have talked to relatives down through the years and uh, people that was around these people down through the years that uh, supposedly uh, accurate accounts of them in a we're going to listen to what some people say about the real Doc Holliday, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about some other issues. And uh, I'd like to say uh, I've had a lot more comments about my uh, T-shirts and merchandise for my podcast. Our our website for our merchandise uh, sales and stuff is not up and running yet, but keep those questions and comments coming in and uh, we'll uh, try to hook y'all up with a t-shirt or whatever and uh, like I say we thank y'all for tuning in and uh, our goal is still to make our podcast the best podcast out there and uh, your comments and uh, your suggestions are a big part of it and uh, each week I now I read each and every comment and uh, keep those coming in we need uh, we need that because, like I've said all along, this is y'all's podcast, so send them on in. And y'all sit back now with your favorite beverage and uh, listen to some uh, people talk about Doc Holiday, one of my favorites. Tombstone, Arizona, October 26, 1881. Four men walk down a dusty street, headed for a gunfight. Wyatt Earp and his two brothers have been lawmen for years. The fourth man is not a marshal, a sheriff, or police officer. He is a dentist. He is Doc Holliday. And he is about to make history at a place called the OK Corral. In mid-afternoon of October 26, 1881 in Tombstone, things really did come to flashpoint. This is one of the few times in Western history where you really have a walk down where a decision has been made and they walk four abreast. At 3 p.m., the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday confronted the five cowboys associated with the Clanton family of Tombstone. As city marshal, Virgil Earp asked them to turn in their guns. Virgil claims he hears click, click, the cocking of a revolver. What you're hearing is someone making a surreptitious or attempted clandestine move. And Virgil says, hold on, I don't want that. The shooting started almost immediately. Armed with a 10-gauge Wells Fargo shotgun, Doc Holliday fires. After emptying the shotgun, Holliday throws down the weapon and finds himself facing the six-gun of a cowboy named Frank McClowry. He holds up his, his forearm and he braces his, his handgun across it and says, I've got you now. And Doc, according to the Tombstone Nugget, next day says, blaze away, you're a daisy if you have. 
The slogan, you're a daisy, and you're a daisy if you have, were popular catchphrases in the 1880s, the equivalent of just do it or make my day. At the peak of the OK Corral gun battle, Doc Holliday not only urges his opponent to shoot him, he mocks him with a pop culture slogan. It's an act of sarcastic bravado that sums up the entire character of Doc Holliday. Yet Doc's reaction after the gunfight seems shockingly out of character. And sits on the bed and starts weeping and saying, this is terrible, this is terrible. Who was this man who could joke in the face of death, who actually asked his opponent to shoot him? To the world at large, Doc Holliday was one whiskey-soaked, bullet-spitting son of thunder whose only saving grace was that he would soon be dead. The real Doc Holliday was flamboyant, and he was college-educated, a skillful gunman, and he liked to play cards, he liked women. He was a rock star of the era. Today we remember Doc Holliday as this deadly shootist who, you know, is fast on the draw and just your classic Hollywood gunfighter, and of course he was nothing like that at all. History seems to record two different Doc Holidays. One is the deadly gunslinger. The other is the private individual who wept when he killed a man. Doc Holliday remains a legend of the Old West precisely because he combines these startling contradictions. He was born John Henry Holliday in 1851 to a Georgia family that was part of the rarefied world of the pre-Civil War Southern aristocracy. Ironically, the future gunslinger was a shy and pampered child. Born with a cleft palate and a speech impediment, John Henry was kept away from other children by an overprotective mother, Alice McKee Holliday. She took upon the therapeutic aspects of, of raising him, caring for him, um, teaching him how to speak. They spent innumerable hours together. The bond was uh, extremely close. The idyllic world of the Southern aristocracy was about to change forever with the Civil War. Doc's father, Henry Holliday, volunteered for the Confederate Army, serving as a quartermaster. And as the Confederacy faced defeat, Henry moved his family as far as he could from the conflict to the southern Georgia town of Valdosta. It was in Valdosta that Alice Holliday began to show signs of a mysterious ailment. She lost weight. She had fevers at night, and she developed a racking, spastic cough. Today, the disease would be diagnosed as tuberculosis. In 1866, doctors simply called it consumption. They actually thought this disease consumed your body from within. From 1800 to 1870, one out of five deaths in America was attributed to consumption. No one knew what caused it. No one knew how to cure it. But doctors all recognized the terrible symptoms when they appeared. The first stage, you would have a dry cough and pain in the chest and shoulders. The second stage, you would start coughing up mucus streaked with blood at times. The final phase, you become gruesomely emaciated. 
So it's a slow, very uh, gruesome, painful way to die. For two years, John Henry watched his beloved mother wither. On September 16, 1866, Alice McKee Holliday died of tuberculosis. Three months after Alice's death, Henry Holliday remarried to a 20-year-old daughter of a local judge. John Henry could only see this as an act of disloyalty. Doc seems to suffer something of a Hamlet experience here. He feels this a betrayal of his mother, and I think it frays his relationship to his father. And if you want to generalize, you might say it, 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 there's a possibility it affects his attitude toward general authority. Perhaps it's not surprising that shortly after this, teenage John Henry was involved in an incident of violence. John Henry and his family had set aside a, a little watering hole on the river where they could come and play. And one day he went down there with his uncle and he saw some free black men in the water, frolicking and having a good time. To the son of former slave owners, this was an outrageous affront. Doc's reaction was to prove prophetic. He took an 1851 Navy Colt, shot it over their heads. His uncle said, be sure you shoot high. And he chased him out. Some accounts say that the teenager actually shot and killed a man in the incident. Whether the story is true or simply part of the legend, it demonstrates the dark turn that the young man's life had taken. John Henry Holliday had already lost his mother. And like all Southerners, he had lost a way of life. But in their place, the teenager had found something far more effective than all of them, a gun. So they're in town for a showdown. I'd like to go with you. Come on, Doc. Get off the street. Much of what the world knows about Doc Holliday comes from movies and television. And most of those screen images come from a single source. All of what we know about Doc Holliday is essentially from the Stuart N. Lake book about Wyatt Earp. Wyatt gave his memoirs to uh, Stuart Lake before he died in the late 20s. And when Wyatt died two years later, Stuart N. Lake came out with this book that glorified not only Wyatt Earp, but Doc Holliday as well. Open your mouth. In the 1950s, Doc Holliday was featured in the television series Stories of the Century. I've got to go to Tombstone and warn Wyatt that I decided to kill him in the morning. Earp's a good friend of yours, isn't he? Best. Big screen versions of Doc Holliday have ranged from Cesar Romero to Jason Robards. Victor Mature played Doc in John Ford's My Darling Clementine. Kirk Douglas played him in 1957's Gunfight at the OK Corral. Doc Holliday was such a flamboyant character, it's a, a, a great opportunity for any actor to show the range because he is humorous, he is compassionate, he is deadly, and he dies. <laughs> Everything you would want for an Oscar-nominated performance. In fact, Dennis Quaid was nominated for an Oscar for his portrayal in 1992's movie, Wyatt Earp. 
In that same year, Val Kilmer gained accolades for his version of Doc Holliday in the critically acclaimed Tombstone. But historians agree that no movie portrayal has ever done justice to the real Doc Holliday. In 1870, the real John Henry Holliday was a troubled teenager. Family members offered to send the young man north for training in the field of dentistry. He enrolled in the Pennsylvania College of Dental Surgery, graduating in 1872. He left Georgia a teenager in trouble with the law. He returned as a young man with a future. He came home, he opened up his own practice with another gentleman. Here's a young man, 21, 22 years of age, uh, six foot tall or almost, a doctor, very good looking, according to the records, a good catch for any woman. But apparently there was only one woman he was interested in. His first cousin, Martha Ann Matty Holliday. The nature of John Henry and Matty's relationship is not completely clear. There's a story that Doc and Matty were in love. They may well have just been good friends, although the romantic angle uh, is intriguing. The romance did not proceed very far before more disturbing events intervened. Months into his new practice, the young dentist had begun to rapidly lose weight. New symptoms began to emerge, night fevers, weakness, and coughing blood. The doctor's report was unequivocal. Like his mother, John Henry was a victim of consumption. He was given six months to live. There was no cure. He was clearly a man in a terminal condition. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot that could be done at that point in time. However, he was told that by moving to the clear, dry air of the American West, he could prolong his life by perhaps as much as two years. In 1873, John Henry ended his dental practice and broke off his engagement to Matty Holliday. He had watched his beloved mother cough away her life. He was not going to let his loved ones watch him do the same. He boarded a train for Dallas, Texas, the literal end of the railroad line, and apparently the end of the line for John Henry himself. If we look at his life course, after his diagnosis. He is a man who feels he has no future running away from the past. In Dallas, he made a short-lived attempt at opening a dental practice. Most people were a little careful about going to a dentist who had consumption, and especially when in those days they figured you could catch it real easy. So Doc's business wasn't that good. failure at dentistry and the walking dead man he found his solace in alcohol and in gambling john henry found that he was very good at numbers he needed money to live on he did very well at gambling so he slowly became a professional gambler john henry now better known as doc began to put in more time at the poker table and apparently was very good at his new profession but a professional gambler faced certain inherent dangers in the job. 
To be a gambler in Doc's time was a dangerous profession for the simple reason that most men, especially inebriated men, did not care to lose their money to another man in a game of chance. Doc always carried two pistols and a knife, generally. The American West of the 1880s was full of violent men. Shootings and stabbings were common. Some scholars have said there is a single reason for the violence that gave the American West its reputation. A lot of the old West is a consequence of the Civil War. In the Civil War, we had 600,000 killed, and we didn't have any type of uh, psychological understanding about post-traumatic stress disorder. You had a lot of people who were scarred. In the face of a violent culture, Doc Holliday began to reinvent himself. No longer as a young gentleman dentist, but as a deadly killer with a hair-trigger temper. Most of Doc's legend, a lot of the stuff that's come down to us today included, is uh, actually fabrication made up by Doc himself to uh, protect himself. He seemed to delight in a kind of menacing persona. You had, I think, a calculated attempt to uh, develop a reputation which would act as a shield and a protector. By this time, Doc had also found the only short-term cure for his coughing fits, alcohol. I think he drank uh, about two quarts of whiskey a day. And for a 130-pound guy, that was pretty good. Doc Holliday began to pursue the roving life of a gambler, making his way from boomtown to boomtown across the West. Fort Griffin, Texas, Trinidad, Colorado, Cheyenne, Denver, Deadwood. His record of arrests and shooting incidents was growing. He was a man who was quite volatile, who was capable of pulling a gun, who was willing to walk to the edge. You don't have to kill a lot of people before people become weary of you. He was never afraid to die because he was dying already. The gambler with a skeletal figure and a hair trigger was beginning to make a name for himself. Throughout the Old West, Doc Holliday had begun to gain a reputation, both as a gambler and a gunman. Doc's choice of gun was the key to his survival. Doc carried a nickel-plated self-cocker. He didn't have to cock the hammer back, he just pulled the trigger. Now, in the late 70s, there were two that were nickel-plated. The fact that he was a slight person, not big, not, not muscular, it makes me think that he carried the Lightning in 38 because it had a smaller grip and it could fit in his hand easier and he could use it better. Somewhere in his travels, Doc Holliday made the acquaintance of the only woman who would remain by his side. Her name was Mary Catherine Haroni but she was better known as big-nosed Kate, the whore. The life of a prostitute in a western town was not an easy one. It was an unhealthy, a dirty profession, sleeping with the number of men they had to sleep with, no medicine, no baths. Perhaps Doc Holliday, the southern aristocrat turned gambler, and big-nosed Kate, the Hungarian lady turned whore, recognized in each other a kindred soul. 
They have a tempestuous on-again, off-again relationship over the years. At times, she's listed in the newspapers as Mrs. John Holliday. Those dockers generally listed in the census as single. Photos of big-nosed Kate show that she did not have a big nose. She apparently gained her name because she stuck her big nose in other people's business. In one instance, sticking her big nose in saved Doc Holliday's life. In Fort Griffin, Texas, Doc was playing poker with a gambler named Ed Bailey. You can't play poker. Ed kept trifling with the deadwood or the discarded cards. Doc pulled his knife and he cut Bailey just below the brisket, as they say. Doc was arrested and a lynch mob began to form outside the jail, preparing to storm it and string up Doc Holliday. Kate put a plan into action. She set fire to a barn in the center of town and waited until the townsfolk gathered to put it out. Then, after stealing two horses, she recovered Doc's guns, burst into the jail, and freed Doc from the sheriff's grasp. Fleeing Fort Griffin ahead of the law and the lynch mob, Doc and Kate decided to head north to the biggest boom town of all, Dodge City. Why he would go to Dodge? Well, Dodge was uh, in the summertime one of the chief railheads for the cattle drives, and for a professional gambler, you follow the money. The marshal of Dodge would become legendary. His name was Wyatt Earp. He had tamed the unruly town by a simple but effective method. He took away people's guns. Partying cowboys were free to continue their wild sprees in Dodge, but now less likely to blow holes in each other. In Dodge City, Wyatt was cornered by some angry cowboys. It was the gambler, Doc Holliday, who saved his life. Doc got the drop on a number of cowboys who were about to gun down Wyatt, and uh, supposedly Doc said he restored order by shooting a couple of them. The marshal was eternally grateful. Doc Holliday, the professional gambler and gunslinger, and Wyatt Earp, the legendary lawman, became lifelong friends. Wyatt Earp came from a tight family. He and his brothers had already made a name for themselves as marshals and deputies in towns throughout the West. I think when Doc met the Earps, he saw in the Earps what he missed so much from his family. It was, there was a bond there, a very tight bond where blood was thicker than water. And the one thing that Doc wanted more than anything else was to be in a family. In 1879, Doc decided to join Wyatt and his brothers in the West's newest and biggest boomtown, a little place called Tombstone. Tombstone was the wildest town on the frontier in that period. There'd been an enormous silver strike there, and there was money everywhere. It was not uncommon for $20,000 pots to be in the card tables at night. It was just an amazing place, classic boom town. Wyatt and his family had already installed themselves in Tombstone. Virgil, the oldest brother, had become a deputy marshal. Wyatt's younger brother, Morgan, rode shotgun for Wells Fargo stages. And Wyatt himself was a faro dealer while running a campaign to be elected local sheriff. Doc Holliday was not necessarily a welcome addition to the neighborhood. He's not a terribly likable man. He's irascible. 
He uh, seems sometimes to go out of his way to irritate people, um, and people are afraid of him. So for Wyatt, with political aspirations, Doc Holliday is not the kind of friend that's going to win you many votes. Yet somehow, Wyatt Earp maintained a fierce loyalty to the hot-headed gunslinger. Wyatt was embarrassed by Doc on a number of occasions, and when Wyatt was working as a lawman and Doc would be naughty and Wyatt would have to kind of explain the thing away and uh, yet he remained friends with him. In fact, Doc quickly got into a fight in the very saloon that Wyatt operated. After a bitter argument with bartender Milt Joyce, Doc found himself ordered out of the bar. This was not something one did to Doc Holliday, or at least it was never done twice. Doc returned this time with his pistols. In the melee that followed, Milt Joyce was shot in the hand and another bartender was shot in the foot before Doc was subdued. The story brings out an important point about the legend of Doc Holliday as a gunslinger. He was fast, but he wasn't very accurate. Doc's reputation as a gunfighter was vastly overblown, pretty much by Doc himself. He invented all these stories about, uh, about himself being this deadly killer. As far as getting his firearm out and into action, he was real quick. But unless you were four feet in front of him, or a barn, he'd probably miss you. Whether or not Doc Holliday was a deadly shot, his reputation terrified the gamblers and miners of Tombstone. But there was a threat that was even more frightening. They were a ragtag lot of cattle rustlers, stage robbers, and thugs who called themselves the Cowboys. They had decided to make Tombstone their own. And Doc Holliday was one of the people standing in their way. Tombstone, Arizona was the biggest boom town in the Old West with a population second only to San Francisco. But by the end of 1880, Tombstone had been hit with a scourge. The American West was full of cattle rustlers, outlaws, and thieves. But in Tombstone, this element had become organized and operated freely. They called themselves the Cowboys. Well, the papers call them the Cowboys. They were a group of ne'er-do-wells on the southeastern border of Arizona. They were known as rustlers. They raided into Mexico for Mexican cattle. After a while, they didn't care what side of the border their cattle came from. The Cowboys not only rustled cattle, they robbed men shot strangers, and terrified the townspeople. They were as close as you can get to organized crime, really, in the Old West. The cowboys were led by Ike Clanton, a rancher who was better known as a drunk and a bully than as a cattleman. Another leader of the cowboys was a vicious killer and gunslinger named John Ringo, better known as Johnny Ringo. Johnny Ringo shot one person in the jaw because the man refused to drink with him. He may well have been psychotic. He was considered by all who knew him to be an extremely dangerous character. By 1881, the brawling town of Tombstone had polarized into two factions. On one side stood the cowboys, 
On the other side stood Wyatt Earp and his brothers, with Virgil Earp as city marshal. And also on the Earp's side, like an ace in the hole, stood Doc Holliday. Tensions grew during the spring and summer of that year. In August of 81, old man Clanton, Ike's father, is killed in an ambush by Mexicans on the border. And it seems to affect Ike in a peculiar way. He seems to be growing increasingly paranoid. There is a version that has Doc and Wyatt and some others uh, working with the Mexican authorities to eradicate the rustlers. That's never really been proven, but it is a possibility. Did Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp actually murder one of the cowboys? It might explain the growing tensions. The infamous gunfight at the OK Corral actually began in a bar with a startling confession by Doc Holliday. Doc's confrontation with Ike Clanton the night before the gunfight is a very interesting one because Doc, during this confrontation, told Ike that he had killed Ike's old man, meaning uh, old man Clanton. Doc starts chastising, and he upbraids him viciously. Ike feels humiliated by the experience. He believes the Earps are part of the operation to humiliate him. Ike spent the rest of the night drinking and gambling and telling everyone he could find that he was going to kill Doc Holliday. In the morning, he went looking for Doc. The tuberculosis-ridden gunslinger was staying in a local tombstone boarding house. Kate alerts Doc to the situation. She says, uh, Ike Clanton is looking for you. And you get one of the great Doc Holliday lines. Doc says, if God lets me live long enough, he will see me. Doc joins Wyatt, Morgan, and Virgil Earp on the street. Wyatt and Virgil Earp, they had had about enough of all Ike's threats, and when someone came to them and told them that Ike and Billy Clanton, the McClowries, and others were near the OK Corral, and they were all armed, they decided that it was time to confront these guys and uh, take away their guns. Virgil asks Doc to carry a shotgun. He gives Holiday the Wells Fargo shotgun because he could cover that gun over with the, the coat so as not to be too provocative. The four men began to walk through the streets of Tombstone to meet Ike Clanton and four cowboys at the rear entrance of the OK Corral. The gunfight at the OK Corral is actually a misnomer. The gunfight happened in a vacant lot about 90 feet from the OK Corral, and it was a narrow little lot, and it was only 15 feet wide. It was crowded when they stepped into that area. They walk into the lot. Holiday stays out in the street with the shotgun. Virgil told the men to throw up their hands. Then the shooting started. Subsequent analysis of Doc's movements and actions at the OK Corral show him as a master of lethal tactical planning. His job is to protect the flank, not to let the cowboys out a lot so that they can flank the Earp brothers. What's peculiar about Doc's performance in the gunfight is how much walking he does. He traverses more ground than any other participant. After emptying the shotgun, Doc finds himself looking down the barrel of Frank McClowry's pistol. Doc's calm response was characteristic. Blaze away! 
You're a daisy if you do. So was his next move. He calmly shot McLeod. Doc fires and Morgan Earp fires and hits Frank under the right ear and flips him over and, and, and kills him instantly. The gunfight was over. Three cowboys were dead. One was wounded. And Ike Clanton, the man whose threat started the gunfight, actually had run away. Virgil and Morgan Earp were both wounded. Doc had been grazed by a bullet on his hip. Only Wyatt Earp was unharmed as the smoke cleared. Doc's behavior immediately after the OK Corral was uncharacteristic for the king of gunfighters. Kate claims he sits on the bed and starts weeping and saying, this is terrible, this is terrible. Doc Holliday's strange and traumatic reaction is surprising, but may have a simple explanation. The only person that we know for certain that Doc Holliday killed is Tom McClary at the OK Corral. Fact is, until the OK Corral, he may not have killed anybody. Our movie gunfighters aren't always like our real gunfighters, and that's how Kate pictures Doc as leaping in dismay after the fight. There was no time for mourning. The burial of the three cowboys inflamed the surviving members of the gang. Murder charges were brought against Doc and the Earps, but after a brief trial, they were exonerated. It seemed that Doc Holliday's feud with the Cowboys had climaxed and come to its conclusion at the OK Corral. But it was really only the beginning. Doc Holliday had been on the winning side during the gunfight at the OK Corral. But the Cowboys were not gracious losers. Three months after the shootout, a drunken Johnny Ringo accosted Wyatt Earp on the streets of Tombstone and demanded to have it out on the spot. Wyatt dug off saying, you know, he had uh, political ambitions and that wouldn't look very good. At this point, Doc Holliday stepped in, as usual with a sarcastic witticism. I'll be a huckleberry. It's just my game. According to the Dictionary of American Slang, Huckleberry meant just the man you're looking for. Ringo at that time was drunk, and he just said, I'm not going to take any more of this. Come on, you little lunger, let's shoot it out. And Holiday was more than willing to oblige. And I think the rest of the men from that faction said, wait a minute, we're going to lose Ringo here if we don't watch it. So let's protect him, drag him away, and stop this fight. The Cowboys had avoided another fight but they hadn't ended their campaign. In December 1881, Virgil Earp was shot and maimed by unseen assassins. Three months later, Morgan Earp was shot in the back and died in Wyatt's arms. That pretty much sent both Wyatt and Doc over the deep end. Morgan and Doc were carousing buddies. They went out every night together almost, so when Doc heard that Morgan had been murdered, he went crazy. He was, went around Tombstone kicking in doors looking for people he felt responsible. Wyatt and Doc decided to seek vengeance in what Western historians have called the Vendetta Ride. 
White Earp immediately gathered a posse to go with him to find the killers. In pretty quick order, they uh, found a number of the men responsible for the shootings of both Virgil and Morgan and eradicated them from the planet. By April 1882, the cowboys were all dead, except one. But he was perhaps the deadliest of them all, Johnny Ringo. Ringo may have known he was a marked man, for he'd left Arizona shortly after Morgan Earp's death. In July 1882, Johnny Ringo was found dead under peculiar circumstances. They find the body of Johnny Ringo uh, propped up in a tree in Turkey Creek Canyon. And he's got a bullet hole in his right temple. His death is called one of the great mysteries of, the, of Arizona's frontier times. Some people thought White Earp might have killed him. Some people said Doc Holliday could have killed him. And some people said he committed suicide. Nobody knows. Historians disagree on how Johnny Ringo died. In movies and novels, Doc Holliday is usually credited with killing Ringo. Mysterious details were discovered on the corpse. Ringo's cartridge belt had been placed on his body upside down. A piece of his scalp had been cut off. And his hat was still on his head, despite a bullet wound. There are so many oddities there that uh, the death of Ringo uh, continues to inspire questions and, and the imagination of Hollywood writers. We may never know whether Doc Holliday shot his nemesis or whether the man who shot Johnny Ringo was Johnny Ringo himself. All that is certain is that by the end of 1882, an era was over for Tombstone. The incidents at the OK Corral had also catapulted John Henry Holliday into national fame, except in his own hometown. They hit newspapers from San Francisco to New York. Uh, they say that Doc had something to do with his name not being mentioned in the local papers in Georgia. He was that concerned about what his family saw of him. The year following the gunfight had taken its toll on Doc's health. When he stayed in Leadville, Colorado, a newspaper reported the arrival of the world-famous gunslinger. Dr. Holliday got off the train, looking like a man well advanced in years for his hair was silver white, and his form emaciated and bent. The Colorado Ute Chief. At the time of this description, Doc Holliday was 34 years old. His time on Earth was drawing to a close. John Henry Holliday had earned a frightening reputation throughout the Old West as the gambler and gunslinger Doc Holliday. But when he arrived at the mining boom towns of Colorado in the 1880s, he was only a shadow of his former self. Though only in his mid-30s, the tuberculosis and the years of hard living had taken their toll. The drinking catches up with him. You know, drinking isn't a healthy habit to have if you're a gambler. You've got to know what those cars are doing. His health is uh, deteriorating. The altitude is going to help those lungs. Not that they knew that. 
It was thought that the thin air and frigid temperatures of the Rockies would ease tuberculosis symptoms. Here's a Doc Holliday that is an invalid. He's walking with a cane, he's got gray hair, uh, he's broke, he can barely get by. It's sad because the man had courage and a strange kind of fascination to him, and he really don't want to see his, his powers be depleted. And his last years show neither focus nor purpose. Doc moves to the mining camps of Leadville, where instead of cleaning out the locals, he finds himself broke and in debt. He's arrested in Denver for vagrancy and forced to leave town. He finally ends up in the small resort of Glenwood Springs, Colorado, in a final attempt to ease his tuberculosis at the famous Hot Springs. Glenwood Springs was known for its special healing powers. They help people with tuberculosis. Well, that's why he went there, to breathe in the hot springs. Unfortunately for Doc, the hot springs had sulfuric acid, or sulfuric fumes, if you will. At the time, it was thought that sulfur fumes might ease the symptoms of tuberculosis. Instead, it simply ate away the lung tissues. There were no actual clinics or hospitals in Glenwood Springs. Like the rest of the consumptives, Doc stayed in a hotel. say that every time someone came up to bring him a meal, they were always met with Doc and a brace of cults. Dr. Holiday. In his final days, Doc's disease had reached the point called galloping consumption. The disease spread from the lungs to the skin itself, where it breaks out in boils and sores. For 57 days, Doc lay in a near comatose condition as the disease ravaged his body. On November 8, 1887, Doc Holliday woke up clear-eyed and clear-headed. He asked for a glass of whiskey, which he drank slowly. Then he said his final words. I'll be damned. This is funny. I think Doc expected to die with his boots on, not to die in such a peaceful environment. There he was, his socks and shoes off, probably struck him funny that and after everything he'd been through, he was dying peacefully. At the time of his death, he was 35 years old. Few people turned out for the funeral of Doc Holliday, and the winter snows of Colorado Springs made it impossible for the hearse to climb the hill to the cemetery. They buried Doc at the base of the hill, intending to rebury him in the cemetery in the spring. They never came back. So Doc stayed where he was originally buried at the base of the Mesa. And as the town grew, it's, it's believed that today that Doc is probably in somebody's backyard. No one knows where the body of Doc Holliday lies buried, but a headstone in the cemetery marks the place he was supposed to rest. Big-nosed Kate was with Doc until the very end. She lived another 53 years, dying in the Prescott Pioneers' home in Arizona in 1940. And back in Georgia, Maddie Holliday, Doc's first love, had never married after he left her. In fact, she became a nun, dying in a convent in 1939.
Doc and Sister Maddie had carried on an intense correspondence over the years, but no one knows the contents of the letters between the gunfighter and the nun. Unfortunately, upon her death in the late 1930s, some relatives took the letters and burned them. It was since stated that if the letters had been made public, the world would have known a different Doc Holliday, but unfortunately, that's not to be. Perhaps Wyatt Earp's own words best sum up the way history usually remembers Doc Holliday. Doc Holliday was the most skillful gambler and the nerviest, fastest, and deadliest man with a six-gun that I ever saw. The image of Doc Holliday will remain a mythic icon for as long as the Old West is remembered. But the real man behind the myth is just as intriguing. And I think a lot of the fascination today is because this was a guy who really didn't belong there. And yet, there he was. Not only there he was, he was sickly and shouldn't have been there in the first place, and yet he was holding his own among some real desperate characters. What makes him fascinating to us is this remarkable congruence in his personality of both elegance and decadence. And elegance and decadence are the ironic cobblestones of the Victorian era. And Doc has them both. He's a killer. He's intelligent. He's refined. He's a drunk. I mean, he combines so many contrary elements, he continues to fascinate. Perhaps the final ironic contradiction is that in dying young, Doc Holliday gained for himself immortality. Well, I hope y'all enjoyed that. Uh, that's some uh, facts that I didn't really know about Doc Holliday. And, you know, he was an intriguing man. And uh, like they said, uh, both sides of Doc Holliday was intriguing. You know, the, the gunfighter, the gambler, the drinker, and the real Doc Holliday. So that's something that we probably won't ever really know. That was historians talking about it and... Uh, that's something we probably won't ever know. That's a mystery. And uh, uh, i done that uh, podcast on uh, in that story on Doc Holliday for some suggestions for some of my uh, listeners. And I hope you all enjoyed that. And uh, next week, uh, we're going to get back to some of our roots. Uh, next week, we're going to have a podcast on wrestling. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, the wrestling of today and some recent changes that i've seen in it uh i started to do a podcast on it last week but i held off and uh next week we're going to try to do a podcast on that and like i said earlier and i always say keep those questions coming in keep those uh suggestions coming in and uh we'll keep those t-shirts coming out to y'all and uh i hope y'all enjoyed the podcast tonight uh like i always say i love you guys uh, keep on tuning in and uh I'm going to get this podcast out now, and uh, I'm going to listen to my whole podcast again because I think it's a very uh, informative and uh, enjoyable podcast tonight. And uh, y'all keep giving me them likes, and uh, we're going to keep on coming back each and every week. Thank you, guys, and good night.